welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I am, of course, Joe Wolfond, and I am, of course, joined remotely by my co-host, Joseph Cacharo. Talk to me, Cash. It's a lot of of courses in that first uh, first couple lines there. But of course, we are here, <laughs> and we are still remote, and who knows, maybe sometime soon we will venture to the office. And I mean, the office is now open uh, voluntarily, but there's not really a reason for us to record there. I think we've mastered the at-home recording. I think our audience is good with the at-home recordings. I don't think there's any quality issues based on the feedback we've been getting, the positive feedback, which has led to a bunch of fan shout-outs. And now I'm just rambling. So let's talk some ball. Because NBA ball is back. And this is, our, is, wait, yeah, this is our first episode into the season. Our last one was the prediction-style post, so... Let's do it. Yeah, we've had about a week's worth of games. And, you know, this part of the season is always, it's good and bad in ways, right? It's really exciting because we're getting all this new information. Obviously, there's preseason, but you never know how many grains of salt with which to take preseason action. When the season first starts, it's like you don't know what to expect from all these different teams. You're watching them in a lot of cases for the first time um, in their current form. And so you just sort of want to take in as much of it as you can. You want to see what these teams look like, how certain new additions are fitting in. And it's like, there's a, a balance that you try to strike between, you know, wanting to keep an eye on the big picture and remain nuanced and not overreact to what is, some very small sample size theater. And at the same time, just being really excited or really nervous about some early season trends that, I mean, that's, that's, I guess the, the art of it, right. Is trying to suss out what's real, what's not, what's sustainable, what isn't. And so that's where we're at an right art. now. What we do is definitely an art. I'm glad you refer to it as one. Well, it's more art than science. I'll tell you that. Um, it's, it's very unscientific. Uh, I mean, I guess there are data wonks who, who can try to boil it down to a science, but, um, for me, the, the fun of it is, uh, the artistry of just, you know, going with your gut, using the eye test to try and figure out what you think, what you think actually is happening. Um, and that can definitely be a challenge, but we're going to run through some early season observations that we are going to, again, provide with grains of salt while acknowledging that this is all, you know, very small sample size theater, that it's early, that a lot of this can change. But regardless, we do have a week's worth of games to discuss and we have some takeaways from those games. So I'll throw it over to you, Cash. I think we're, we're going to go pretty unstructured here and just toss out some of the things that have caught our eye, things that have been really interesting to us, things that are exciting, things that are worrying. Where do you want to start? You know what? Let's start actually in Dallas. Luka Doncic came into the season, I believe for the second year in a row, as the preseason MVP favorite from a betting odds perspective. And Interesting. I mean, we're both obviously, as any logical basketball fan in 2021, massive Doncic fans just in the way he can affect the game, the way he plays the game, the uniqueness of his game. And so I don't even necessarily think... It's anything about him regressing or stagnating or anything like that. My observation is that 
the Mavs roster construction, which we we know isn't exactly top notch, and we know that there are likely issues related to the fact that they need to find a legit number two guy. That's not Kristaps Porzingis, who left last night's game with back tightness. I mean, it doesn't seem like it'll be anything serious, but we know how that goes with KP. We know there were roster constructions there coming into the year. I think they've manifested more in these first few games this season in the offense and in Luka Doncic's performance than they have in past years. Now, again, that could change. Small sample size theater, all that aside, all the caveats you threw out at the beginning. You know, this is a team that's had a pretty elite offense the last couple of years. Through a week of the season, they're in the bottom 10. But the thing I've noticed more this year is just that poor roster construction. You really see it in the way Luka is struggling to get things going. He's putting up numbers. You know, they're, the Mavs are 2-1. and one. They lost to the Hawks. They won in Toronto and they beat Houston on Monday night. But like the Saturday game, for example, Doncic, I thought in Toronto was the best player on the floor. He took over in the second half. He very much looked like a guy who could not be stopped. And then you look at the box score at the end of the game and you realize he actually scored pretty inefficiently. It wasn't his best work. Exact same against Houston. It's like he was the best player on the floor. He very much took the game over. You look at his numbers at the end of the night. It's like, man, he he really had to work for it. And again, it, yes, it could just be a small sample size of three games, but I think what we've seen through this first week and the fact that yeah, Luca's getting the job done at a certain level, but he's having to do it really ugly. He's having to like almost like really have to scrape and claw to manufacture points for this team. And Tim Hardaway's been good for him as like a secondary guy, but you know, Tim Hardaway shouldn't be your secondary guy if you're a team that's serious about contending with an MVP candidate at the top of your roster. So to me, that's one of the more interesting observations through the first week is just that Lucas seems like he's having to struggle more to manufacture, to basically make wine out of water here with the Mavs. And maybe, I don't know, maybe everything clicks at a certain point for this team. Maybe for, you know, this is the first time in the how many years we've been saying maybe Porzingis put it together this year that he actually does and magically everything's fine in Dallas, but I don't think that's the case. I think as long as this is what the supporting cast looks like around Luka Doncic I do think he's gonna have to go through a process that looks as ugly as it has through the first week of the season a little bit I mean I think definitely in that game against Atlanta when DeAndre Hunter was you know maybe putting the clamps is like a little bit strong but he was blanketing Luka pretty effectively it's just like where does Dallas have to go in that situation. I, I mean, Hardaway, quite frankly, has been really, really good. Like, yes. if he was their third option, I think they'd be in great shape. 100%. But he's their second um, option right now. I, I did yeah, just want to mention, and, too, because I forgot to mention it when I was uh, when I was going on about it. But, yeah, so, Porzing, uh, sorry, Doncic is using about 30 total possessions a game right now. I'm not talking about his usage rate. I'm talking about, like, total possessions. He's used about 30 a game through three games. And he's shooting under 41% from the field and under 22% from deep. And over and four this is turnovers a general, game. This is a general point that I want to make. I think that, and, and I've really made an effort to skew in this direction in recent years, but rather than looking at overall field goal percentage alongside three-point percentage, like let's look at two-point percentage alongside three-point percentage yeah. because yes, Luca's only shooting like 40% from the field, but he's actually shooting 51% from two, which is below his career average but it's still quite solid for a a lead ball handler 
It's just that he's shooting 21% from three and that's pulling his overall percentages way down. And that's obviously going to come back up. And so his overall shooting line is going to look better. The turnovers are always going to be there. Like he, he's not going to be a low turnover player. Like nobody who controls the ball as much as Luca does is going to be a low turnover player. That's part of the issue that you're pointing to, right? Is that he has to be this heliocentric offensive player. And like, we've seen the benefits of that and we've seen the downsides of that. And like the benefits of it have primarily shown up in the regular season. Like you can craft a really, really good regular season offense when everything revolves around Luca, because there's never going to be a situation in which putting the ball in somebody else's hands rather than his is going to be beneficial. Like he's the guy who you want to be handling the ball in most situations. But of course, you know, their late game offense has suffered from that in past years because he's seemingly worn down under the workload. And then it's also, you know, you run into issues when, whether it's an individual assignment that is doing a number on him the way that Hunter did, whether the defense is throwing multiple bodies at him and the Mavs are still kind of getting stuck in mud because there isn't a ton of secondary playmaking once he gets rid of the ball. Like, it is an issue, and that's why I was really disappointed in their offseason. Like, they they got Reggie Bullock, who I think is a nice fit in certain ways as just sort of a 3 and D option on the wing, but I did not address what I considered to be their primary issue, which was that lack of, of secondary playmaking. And, and look, Jalen Brunson, solid player, really nice player, but uh, I do think they need more, and... I also think, you know, this will look a lot better when the team collectively isn't shooting 30% from three-point range. But uh, I do hope, I, I mean, a lot of people pointed this out. Like in that game against Atlanta, they were really trying to emphasize post-ups. Um, you know, not just for Porzingis, but for guys like Dorian Finney-Smith and like other complementary players. But I don't think it's totally wrong-headed for the Mavs to want to keep those guys involved rather than it just being the Luca show and everybody else is standing around and watching. Like there's a certain logic in trying to engage more players in their offense. I just don't think that that is the way to do it. Like, I think you want to incorporate more screening action, more motion, like the static post-ups just aren't going to do it for you, especially when, and I've even talked about how, like there could be a benefit to trying to get Porzingis more comfortable posting up because they're going to need him to do that at times in the playoffs and to be reasonably effective at doing it. But um, it's just not an efficient play type. Like he just has proven time and again that he's not good at that. So um, I think we've seen them, you know, in the last couple of games veer more toward just doing like, you know, high ball screen action for Luca and letting him orchestrate everything. And I think that's going to benefit them um, in the regular season. But I also do think, yeah, at a certain point, they're going to need more variability in their offense. Um, but I think their defenses look better. And I actually think Porzingis, despite what's been a real slog for him at the offensive end to start the season. And despite this back issue, I think he's been moving better. And I think he's looked a lot better defensively than he did last season. If, if he wasn't on the contract he's on, if he wasn't being looked to as the guy Dallas needs to be the number two guy, then I think, you know, at some point you could just kind of settle on the fact like, okay, this is who he is. You know, he's not a bad option to have as a number two guy. Like if your best player is out, he seems to, you know, the, the games when Doncic has sat the last couple of years, Porzingis almost turns into like Nick's Porzingis and just puts up these monster numbers. But for whatever reason, as a secondary guy, maybe it is just, 
you know, because he is not a pick and roll partner. Like he's, for whatever reason, he doesn't, like the skills don't seem to translate as this secondary option. And, you know, the defense has improved and yeah, maybe he solidifies the other parts of his game, but I just don't know how much it's going to matter if he's being relied upon as Luca's number two. Well, I think if, if it's going to happen, it does need to be, and I'm not saying like do away with the post-ups altogether. Like there, there's maybe, you know, despite the long track record of him being poor at doing it, like there is some value in just trying to get him those reps and get him more comfortable doing it come, you know, come playoff time. But like, I think primarily it's got to come, you know, on the back end of pick and rolls. Like he, he it's tough when he's playing next to Powell. You like, you're going to have him popping or spacing out in those situations. But if you're, you know, playing him at the five, then he should be a really dynamic dive man. Yeah. You know, it shouldn't all just be pick and pops. Like you should be able to get him diving towards the basket, having some kind of roll gravity. I think, you know, and part of the issue I guess you run into there is if you have teams that are good at tagging, like he's not the he's not the best playmaker, obviously. Like he's not super alert about making those passes in space. So um I don't know, something something to monitor, obviously, in Dallas, as it is every season. <laughs> yeah. But uh I think he's best yeah. suited to be the number one option on a bad team. The face up game hasn't really developed. And maybe that's just because like Dallas, you know, since they acquired him and you know, obviously they saw him as this ideal complement to Luca, and he is in certain ways, but but what that meant was them asking him to lean more into specialization and to to stand on the perimeter and open up the floor for Luca, which he's been able to do. Like yeah. he, like that's helped Luca in a lot of ways. But I almost wonder if you know them asking him to to lean into those pre-existing skills rather than maybe building out more of a face-up game um, has been part of what's nudged him towards one dimensionality. Uh, and maybe it's just, maybe it was just never going to happen for him because for a guy who's seven foot three, like it's hard to face up. Like yeah. you, how, like unless you have a super tight handle, um, it's going to be kind of easy for smaller guys to knock the ball away from you. Um, and if you don't have a really solid back to the basket game, and if your post-ups basically just consist of you like shooting turnaround jumpers from 15 feet out, then yeah, a lot of the time it's going to make more sense to just have you serving as a magnet on the perimeter. Um, so I don't know. I don't know how that situation is going to end, but honestly, like if he can just shoot the ball better than he has and keep defending the way that he has, he can still be a really, you know, a, a positive impact player for Dallas. Um, you want to talk about the Lakers? Yeah. I mean, no, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just hard to avoid. Like, I don't, Yeah, I feel like we've done a pretty good job on this podcast of like, not just talking about big market teams. And yeah. like, I, I think we actually like talked about the Lakers very little last year, but um, especially starting this season, like they have totally remade their team around LeBron and AD, right? Like it's a completely yeah. new team. Obviously Westbrook being the biggest piece of that. And so, naturally you know that was going to be cause for fascination and especially with how they've struggled and how clunky it's looked at times what are your early takeaways from this two and two lakers start i mean i think the the concerns that we had that we knew were going to be there were laid bare in those first few games and probably will continue to be very obvious 
throughout this season. And that's the fact that there's still not enough shooting around this team. Uh, there is still way too much of a crowded paint. They still play way too many minutes with two bigs rather than AD at the five. And I know you, you can start big and, and AD can still play the five. Like I know he doesn't have to play the five the entire game, but he's not playing the five enough at all. Like all these concerns that we had coming into the year, you know, they're old. They look it right now. But if you are looking for a silver lining, the one thing I would say is look at Westbrook's performance in a an overtime victory over the Spurs on Monday night. Now you can look at the other end of that and say, well, the Spurs should be one of like the two or three worst teams in the West and they needed to go to overtime, but LeBron James didn't play. And I think that's a game they lose without LeBron the last couple of years. And I think to me, it was a good indication. Like this is why they got Westbrook. Like you remember the buddy healed trade that was reportedly out there that look from a fit perspective, there is a good argument to be made that they should have like that deal would have been the better one. Like they, it would have been a better fitting team, more shooting, um, everything slots in nicely, but you know, at a certain level, like, you know, we talk in the playoffs a lot of times about the difference between, you know, fit and all that, but like that top end talent that really does kind of put you over the hump when you need it to. And I think this is why you trade for us because, you know, as great of a fit as the buddy heel deal would have made this team, you probably still don't win that game last night because you need someone like Russ to just take the game over. And I think for as many challenges as the Lakers will have this year, this flawed team is actually better equipped to win more regular season games because Russ gives them something they've never had in these non-LeBron games and non-LeBron minutes, to be honest. For as many concerns that come with the way Russ can dominate the ball, given his you know lack of range and propensity to settle for jumpers, the fact that he can take on such a ball-handling burden is also good for LeBron long-term, like if you're looking big picture over the course of the season. So I think if you're looking for a silver lining, I think Russ's performance and them winning that game in San Antonio, as underwhelming as that sounds, is actually a good indication of why they got Russ and the benefits that they can get out of him being there this season. But that's a silver lining in a four-game smorgasbord of what I'd say is more concern than anything else. Yeah, I mean... Ultimately, wouldn't you still rather make the trade that makes the team better when LeBron is healthy? Because if LeBron's not healthy, they're not winning anything anyway. So No, I, I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. I think the way they view it, rightly or wrongly, is that Russ helps them get through the regular season more and then the top-end talent will win out in the playoffs. Now, you we can argue about whether that's a smart way to think about things given Russell Westbrook struggles in the postseason recently. Uh, but I'm just saying I think that's the way they view it. I think they view it as Russ helps them get through the regular season and then they'll just take the top-end talent in the playoffs. And, like, LeBron will figure it out, you know? Well, I mean, they, they're going to have to figure it out before they get to the playoffs. They have you know, 78 more games to do it. Look, to, I, I am still confident that they will to a certain extent. Obviously, I said before the season that I don't think they're making it to the West Finals. I'm going to stand by that. I think it's going to look a lot better by season's end than it has looked so far. But there are still going to be challenges to overcome. I do think, you know, it was telling to me both about how the Lakers have started the season and how the Grizzlies have started the season uh, and I'd love to talk more about the Grizzlies mm -hmm. in a bit, but yeah, it, it it's telling that after the Lakers eked out that win over the Grizzlies at home 
on Sunday night that, you know, and, and that was thanks to Carmelo hitting like 43s. But like, I was thinking, man, that's, that's a really nice win for the Lakers. Like beating it, this upstart Grizzlies team at home. Yeah. And I, I just, I mean, look, you mentioned their age, like LeBron's already dealing with an ankle injury. AD picked up a knee injury in that win over the Spurs last night. So it's... And in typical AD fashion, it looked like it might have been a career ender for 15 <laughs> seconds before he got up and walked it off and continued to play pretty well. Yeah, and there are like a, a bunch of Lakers fans on Twitter who are just tracking the number of times that AD falls to the floor every single game. And uh, it's wild. The guy falls a lot. Yeah. Um, maybe it's just... He, he just has a high center of gravity, you know? I, I don't know. But... Um, but it's not exactly been a dream start. And I think, look, you mentioned Russ had a great game, specifically a great second half against the Spurs last night. Kind of helped pull them out of a hole that, frankly, he had helped dig in the first half. Do, do you remember what I said about Russ last year? And I, I, and I said the, the like beauty and the madness of Russ is that he will shoot you out of games that you're only in to begin with because of him. And what I said about him was that he is going to make it really difficult for you to have functional half-court offense, but he is also going to ensure that you play in the half-court pretty infrequently. And that has also come to bear. So, look, the the pitfalls of off-ball Russ had totally been there in the half-court. And the Lakers, you know, even after that performance last night, they're like minus nine per hundred possessions with him on the floor. Like they've gotten crushed in his minutes and it hasn't even really mattered if he's been out there with, it's been better when he's been out there with both LeBron and AD, but when he's been out there with only one of those guys, it's still been really bad. And look, you know, the the lack of spacing, we knew that was going to be an issue. I do think that will be better when the Lakers get healthier, when when Ellington's back in the mix, when Kendrick Nunn is back in the mix. You know, THT isn't necessarily going to help the spacing issues, but he'll be another guard option. So maybe we don't need to see any more Russ Rondo backcourt minutes. And... You know, one of the things I wrote about this after their opening game, the game they lost against the Warriors, it's gotten a little bit better since then. But one of the things I'm going to be tracking is, okay, how frequently is LeBron getting to the rim? Because at his age, with the Lakers spacing issues, I just really wonder, does he still have the juice to get to the rim in the half court, even when teams are packing the paint? Because obviously peak LeBron you could pack the paint and he was still going to put pressure on the rim. In that first game, he took 23 shots and two of them came in the restricted area and both of those came in transition. So in the half court, it was strictly jumpers. And he shot the ball well. Like that jumper is going in, but I don't know if that's something that, you know, the Lakers offense wants to hang its hat on long-term. I agree with you that, you know, like whether the juice is there or not is the bigger question and or concern but even if the juice is still there it's gonna like you have russ and dwight on the court at the same time you have russ and deandre like the paint's not exactly an open lane right now well okay so to your point about ad not playing enough center they're playing 21 minutes a game with him at the five 
Like how much higher than that? I, it should be you, more than 50%. They should be playing with AD at center more than 50% of the time. That's like two thirds of his minutes. He's playing center. That's a lot. The majority of the minutes the Lakers play should be with AD at the five. Mm-hmm. That is their best look. Well, I do wonder, I mean, maybe like when Ariza's healthy, you know, when Ellington's healthy, when Nunn is healthy, I, I just think they'll have more options to fill out those lineups. And maybe then we'll start to see them spend more time with him at center. Because right now, I just don't think they have enough good options yeah. to, you know, to put alongside him, LeBron, Russ, whoever the fourth guy is. Like, it's it's going to be easier when they're fully healthy, I think, to structure those lineups they stocked the roster with these like bargain bin veteran centers that like we can talk as much as we want about how it shouldn't matter whatever but we know it does within a locker room and all that like they're not gonna bring those guys on and then you know like not play them at least a little bit and so while i think that ad should be playing the five in the majority of la's minutes i also i also see why frank vogel right now in addition to the lack of options I see why Frank Vogel is is giving the lineups he's giving looks. But it's not just that. Like we just were talking about AG, AD being fragile yeah. and already being banged up and, and falling to the ground multiple times a game. Like you do have to protect him to a certain extent. Like you can't have him going and banging with these bruisers for like 30 plus minutes a game. Like could he handle it for one game? Yeah, he could. Do you necessarily want him doing that? I think that's that's a question that's worth asking. Uh, and another question worth asking is, hey, should Dwight Howard and DeAndre Jordan be the guys that you're using to insulate AD? Like those guys just right. aren't all that good anymore. Right. And that that to me is the bigger issue than AD not playing enough five. Because I think 21 minutes a game with AD at the five is actually sufficient if you have quality center play, which right now the Lakers don't have. But I do want to go back to the Rust thing because I just, look, there there is a challenge in running LeBron AD pick and roll when Russ's guy can just tag aggressively without any consequences. And that's especially true when, when Russ is standing above the break. Like if they're putting him on the wing or in the corner, then maybe that becomes a little bit easier because it's a longer rotation to make and... Because if they're cheating over early, then you can still get Russ in motion and have him cut and take advantage of that. But when he's above the break, it's just not doing anything for them. So, um, you know, there's a possession in the fourth quarter of that Memphis game when the Grizzlies have Steven Adams guarding Russ. And Jaron Jackson was guarding AD. Russ was above the break. LeBron and AD ran pick and roll. Jaron was able to stay up. And Adams just dropped right down to bump AD's roll. And he took that pass away until Jaron could recover. So LeBron winds up swinging the ball to Westbrook on the wing. Adams, you know, is sagging like 10 feet off of him. And Russ just tries to ISO against Adams and winds up airballing a pull-up mid-range jumper. Like those are the kind of possessions that you see sometimes because the the LeBron AD two-man actions get difficult when Russ is playing off the ball. Um, So as I see it, you know, there's a couple ways this could go. And one of them is I've talked about this a lot, you know, and what tends to happen with Russell Westbrook teams. He starts to commandeer more of the offense because having him on the ball and LeBron off the ball rather than the other way around is going to alleviate some of the spacing issues. 
And we saw last night with no LeBron, Russ had kind of a vintage Russ game because everything was running through him on offense. He was running some snug PNR with AD, uh, you know, slicing through seams on his way to the basket. He put up huge numbers. But so doing that with Russ when LeBron is in the lineup, while it would maybe solve some problems, would pose its own set of concerns, you know, namely the fact that the ball is going to be in Westbrook's hands and not LeBron's. And while we know Westbrook individually is probably going to be more impactful in that scenario for the Lakers as a team, you know, I'm not so sure. Um, So that's one way it could go, but the other way it could go. And this maybe feels more fanciful because we've been saying it for 10 plus years and it still hasn't happened. The other way is Russ figures out how to be an off-ball weapon or the Lakers figure out how to use him as such. And and the best way to do that is to have him set ball screens for LeBron and, and probably some for Anthony Davis as well, but mostly for LeBron. And we did start to see that in the Memphis game. Um, you know, Zach Lowe pointed out he set more ball screens in that game than in any other game of his career. And... You know, the point is the vast majority of the time he's going to be guarded by somebody that the opposing team will be reluctant to switch onto LeBron or AD. And so that's usually going to lead to the defense hedging that screen because they're also going to want to prevent those guys, you know, especially LeBron from turning the corner and getting downhill when the screen defender is a small guy. And I think LeBron in most cases is still quick enough to beat an under coverage. So a lot of the time it's going to be a hedge and that's going to give Westbrook a chance to slip into space and catch the ball on the move with a four on three advantage. And we saw another late possession against Memphis where they did that. They had AD in the dunker spot. Russ catches the ball on the roll, makes a really nice lay down pass to AD for a layup. And that's honestly, that's not entirely novel for Westbrook, right? If you remember that rocket season, when defenses started just all out blitzing Harden, whether there was a screen or not, and like sometimes as far out as half court, Russ was the release valve the majority of the time. And like he'd flash to the nail to catch the pass and he'd go to work from there with the man advantage. And I remember him really struggling with that at first, but he got very, very good at running those four on threes to the point that teams basically just scrapped the coverage against Harden by the end of the season. And I think when he's on the floor with LeBron, that's probably going to be his best role in the half court because it keeps him involved in the action rather than having him stand off to the side doing nothing. It makes use of his playmaking and his downhill explosiveness. It mitigates some of the off-ball spacing issues. I just think that's that's probably an ideal way to use him in tandem with LeBron and based on the trend so far, I feel like we will start to see more and more of that. Yeah. I used to say for a long time that the only way I thought Carmelo and Russ could play the idealized roles that they should be playing is if they ever teamed up with LeBron. Cause I thought he would, LeBron was the only guy in the league that they would actually just kind of like realize they should cater to. Now with Melo, it ended up, a little bit at least, you know, he accepted things a little earlier because he almost flamed out of the league. But Russ, it's taken him to now partnering with LeBron, and we'll see if if the trend continues. I will say, though, 
And we saw it again Monday against the Spurs. And it's like, you know, you talked about saying things the last 10 years. We've been saying this the last few years when he had that run in Houston, when he had the run last year in Washington in the second half of the season. But like when, when rim rampaging Russ shows up, the guy who just decides he's going to attack the rim no matter what, and you can't stop him, the guy who doesn't, you know, the terrible volume shooter who doesn't settle for jumpers, he is still like an absolutely awesome player to watch, at least offensively. I mean, defensive concerns aside. And so I hope just from a selfish point of view as a fan, let alone as a media person, that we get more of that rust this year because he has proven that when he's that guy, he's still like easily an awesome game changer in this league. And he did it again against San Antonio. And yeah, like I I totally agree with that. Um, But I do think it's going to like, (laughs) it's going to come down to what he can do in the half court at the end of of the day. Um, And, uh, and yeah, to that point about him being a role man, like we saw the Clippers do that with Eric Bledsoe also, you know, running, you know, the back end of pick and rolls with Paul George basically. And it's pretty similar to what the Nets did with Bruce Brown last year. And I think this is going to maybe be a trend that we see crop up more and more as a way to use non-shooting playmaking guards in half court offensive sets, which is as role men. And it's, it's still kind of a novel concept, but I feel like we might see it catch on more and more. All right. I'm going to take us to our next topic. Cause we've spent like 15 to 20 minutes on each of the first two. And at this rate, we're only going to get to four. Uh, so you'd mentioned the Grizzlies and how we want to talk about them. I also did. So one, I mean, look, Jaw's been great. You know, I came into the season saying that while on paper, I thought the Grizzlies were like the 12th best team in the West that I believe in Jaw enough. I like, it would not surprise me if for the third year in his three year career, he drags the Grizzlies to something much better than they actually should be. And that's not even a knock on like the Grizzlies whole. Cause I do like, that like the direction the franchise is going, the young players and all that. But I think anyone would have to admit that, you know, the presence of jaw is what's really dragged this team ahead of where they should be the last couple of years. And so we can talk about all that and jaw's greatness, but the most interesting observation to me in this Grizzly start is Steven Adams playmaker. I, I don't know how much Grizzlies ball our listeners not in Memphis have watched this first week of the season, but Steven Adams being used as kind of like a playmaking hub from in the middle of the floor has been somewhat fascinating because if you look at his career, like he, not that he's an incapable playmaker, but it's just never been, I guess it's never been asked of him and it's never been a big part of his game. And through three games, Steven Adams is averaging 4.7 assists per game. His previous career high was 2.5 and his assist percentage is up at 19.3. His career assist percentage is 6.7. So we're talking about a guy who's like doubling, tripling his playmaking volume, depending on how you want to look at it, and also just passes the eye test when you look at the way the Grizzlies are running some of their offense through him as a playmaking hub. I do think that that's something I probably didn't account for enough when I was talking. And I still do think it was you know a pretty significant downgrade going from JV to Adams. But I talked preseason, and, and probably the the preseason prediction that I'm regretting the most right now is like confidently picking the under on 41 wins for Memphis. And I, you know, look, I I was concerned about that downgrade, especially at the offensive end of the floor, but 
you know, if you look at it, like I think Adams is an equivalent screener to JV. They're both incredible screeners. They're both incredible offensive rebounders. Even if you don't get the same value of those offensive rebounds with Adams, because he's not going to be able to put the ball back up and into the basket. Um, the majority of the time that he pulls those offensive rebounds down the way that JV was able to. But I do think the passing was, was one of the things that I didn't really account for in terms of Adam's ability to contribute offensively. So while he's not going to make the same kind of impact as a role man or as a post-up threat, his ability to be that playmaking hub, you know, whether it's on the short roll or just as a trigger man around the elbow or the high post has been certainly very valuable for this Grizzlies offense. And I think so far he's looked like a wonderful fit, especially, you know, at that end of the floor in particular, they have like a 130 offensive rating with him on the floor. It's freaking nuts. Um, you know, I, I had the Grizzlies on my list as well. And the thing that's been super interesting to me about them is they have the number one ranked offense in the NBA right now and the 30th ranked defense, which if you look at how that team played last year, where they were very stout defensively, but had some real offensive concerns. And then they lost, you know, basically their most efficient offensive player in the off season. It's uh, it's pretty shocking. And I think, you know, in that pod, when I was talking about why I I felt like they were going to fall short of being a 500 team, basically, I think I said like it on paper, they didn't necessarily get better in the off season. What they're going to be depending on is almost entirely just internal development. And so far this season, that's what we've gotten, right? Like jaw looks like he's taking a leap. Although obviously we have to wait and see on the shooting uh, to know whether that's in any way real, but he's been ridiculous. And the team has collectively shot the lights out from deep. DeAnthony Melton, my guy, my pick for sixth man of the year, who is currently ruining my prediction by starting and making a strong case to stay starting. This guy is shooting 58% on over six three-point attempts per game. Um, and obviously that's not going to sustain. But look, after the the shooting leap that he made last year, when he jumped from shooting like 28% on low volume to like 41% on pretty high volume, I think we're getting to the point where it's starting to feel like it's real for him. And because he does so many other things so well, like if, if that shooting is in any way real, then he's just an awesome freaking all around player. Like the, the ball handling and playmaking are still like for a guard, not quite where you'd want them to be, but just like there's a guy who can make absolute magic in transition can defend like a maniac and can really shoot the ball. Incredible compliment to Ja. Yeah. And I'm curious to see actually, you know, if they keep him in the starting lineup when Brooks comes back and if Desmond Bain, who has also played really well and we talk about internal development, like he, he looks like he's taken a really important step. Uh, Does Bain go to the bench or does Melton go back to the bench? Um, I'd keep Melton in the starting lineup, man. Small sample size theater be damned. Like, for all the reasons you listed, I think he is just such a great compliment to Ja. And, you know, maybe Dylan Brooks's best role is kind of being like a microwave off the bench, right? Like if, if you consider the way he plays and, 
you know, the streakiness in his game a lot of times. Like it's probably better suited to the bench, especially if you found a Melton, you know, type of compliment to Jot in the starting lineup. We've both been high on Melton for a while, um, from when they first acquired him. Uh and and yeah, it's nice to see it coming to fruition now because he I think quietly has gone about like improving as an NBA player, and you're really seeing it this year. Yeah. But I do want to talk so Okay, I mentioned first in offense, 30th in defense. And the big caveat is no Dylan Brooks, who was recovering from a broken hand. And I said many times last season, he was the linchpin of that top 10 defense, which you don't typically say about a perimeter player, but he is an absolute hellhound at the point of attack, guards all different types of players, you know, master ball denier, screen navigator, takes away all your airspace when he's guarding the ball, like extremely physical, sometimes overly so, but he just set the tone for that defense. And they're obviously really missing him right now. And as great as Melton is, I think, you know, he's more so great as like an off ball chaos agent. And I think they've been really missing Brooks's on ball defense and they've been very leaky on the perimeter job still really struggles in that regard especially when it comes to getting around screens and then on the back line and i cautioned a bit about this in the preseason i think like everyone saw adams as a defensive upgrade over jv and probably on balance he is just because he's more agile and more versatile in pick and roll coverage but he's a significantly worse rim protector so when nobody's stopping the ball at the point of attack that becomes a problem and you know, the Grizzlies bench has had as much to do with this as anything. Like their bench has also been surprisingly poor, but even with the starters, like the defense has been an issue. So if the shooting regresses, which I think we can expect it to until Brooks gets back, I feel like there's going to be more of a spotlight on how much they've struggled defensively. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our featured content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative, yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. Alright, so I said I would call the Nets Eastern Conference favorites even if Kyrie doesn't play this season. Through four games, uh, the Nets have not looked so great. Despite KD being ridiculously good, the the team as a whole has looked, I don't know, a little bit janky. Harden, especially. I think there, you know, there have been other issues, but obviously that's been the big one. I don't know whether it's just a case of he's still not fully recovered from that hamstring injury. Obviously, we're coming off another abbreviated offseason. So there's certainly that. He has a tendency to play his way into shape. So maybe it's that as well. Although I don't think we've ever seen him start quite this slowly before. He came back with the Rockets last season, you know, looking like 20 pounds overweight and still dropped 44 and 17 in his first game. Like he's... He's just not physically right right now. And and obviously, like, maybe the biggest question in the league right now, as far as, like, what's going to impact the title picture, is, is that temporary? Is he working his way back? 
or is this age-related decline that is going to completely sap what has made him so effective over the years? And I think, you know, like the big thing everyone wants to focus on right now is the lack of free throws. And I think a lot of people are pointing to the rule changes as the primary cause of that. You know, Harden himself pointed to that. Steve Nash, both of them came out and were like, basically saying that the refs are making an example of Harden in order to set a precedent with these new rules about foul baiting. I think maybe there's a little bit of truth to that. But, you know, to me, it's more so, it's not like, I, I don't feel like they're they're going out of their way to like penalize Harden and to swallow their whistles when he's the one trying to initiate contact. I just think maybe it's more noticeable because of Harden's penchant for grifting. But the bigger issue by far to me has just been like his, his lack of burst. Um, not just like his handle can still get him advantages, I think at the point of attack, but he's not like blowing by guys the way that we've seen. And I think more than that, even it's like, the last step explosiveness, like powering through guys at the rim in order to finish. And I I went and looked at his numbers. Like he is taking 22% of his shots in the restricted area, which is by far the lowest number of his career. And 32% of his shots from floater range, which is the highest of his career. And that to me is telling. And that honestly helps explain the lack of free throws better than anything because he's not getting all the way to the rim. He's relying heavily on those in-between shots on the floater, which has been, you know, that was a really important counter for him, like to be able to develop that floater as a counter to like deep dropping defenses that wanted to essentially goad him into taking the kind of in-between shots that they knew he was reluctant to take. But now he's really relying on it heavily. And I think, that's a big part of the reason he's not getting to the line as much. And as much as like his passing has still been very sharp and is going to be a really important ingredient for this team long-term, like they need him to get back to being something like peak Harden. If this Kyrie situation is going to drag on, like if, if they want to get out of the East, they obviously need way, way more from him. And right now to me, that just looks more like a physical issue than anything. And I don't know, like, Maybe he'll get it back, but maybe he won't. And in that case, like, yeah, the title picture looks completely different. Yeah, I think it's a little column A, a little column B. Like, I mean, he's never been a guy that necessarily relies on athleticism, as we know. But his lack of athleticism and burst right now is more apparent than it's ever been. As you mentioned, it's more apparent right now than it was when he showed up like 80 pounds overweight. Obviously, I'm exaggerating last year. But the combination of that lack of burst and the rule changes, right now it's created a toxic cocktail for his offensive game and when you have a guy that relies on the ball being in his hands as much as he does when you have a guy that dominates the ball as much as he has even on a team with Kevin Durant like that's not a good mix man and you know even the rest stuff it's like the stuff about them making an example out of him I look I get Steve Nash has to go to bat for his guy like I'm not gonna get on him for like I I know a lot of people have pointed out and this is the same guy who said what Trey Young was doing last year wasn't basketball it's like well welcome to coaching in sports like you're gonna go to bat for your like that's just how it works but it is so I like I I totally forgot about that and I'm not I'm not saying that that moment like because you know him being caught on camera telling the referee that's not basketball I'm not saying that led to these rule changes but like 
it is funny to think that maybe that was part of the impetus for them changing for sure. the rules and, and that coming back to bite him and Harden and the Nets in the ass. Yeah, but it, it's just like some people are saying, you know, like, oh, it's like hypocritical for him to, and it's like he's coaching James Harden. Like, he's obviously going to go to bat for his guy. I think he's going to be like, damn, well, I can't say something now because I mentioned what I mentioned about Trey Young last year. But the thing that's funny to me is that the Nets fans or Harden and Nash are saying, okay, like they're they're making an example of James. And it's like, no, they're not going out of the, their way to make an example of James Harden. This rule change came about because of James Harden. Like, the the fact that they've instituted this rule, it wasn't just him. Trey was a big um, guy when it came to those kind of fouls. Luka Doncic is a guy that benefited from those kind of fouls. But more than anyone, James Harden was the guy that benefited from those calls and quote unquote tricked officials with those unnatural basketball movements. But so it's funny now to be to see people being like, well, they're making an example of James Harden. It's like, well, now they're not going out of their way to make an example of James Harden. It's just this rule has been instituted to make an example of the style of play James Harden often played. You know what I mean? It's not now that they're just picking on him when they go and watch him. Yeah, man, it's a problem. Like you said, you like looking at two-point percentage more than field goal percentage. James Harden's shooting 40% from two-point range, man. From two-point range. This is a guy that, you know, he can get hot from deep and he'll let him fly because he's a good enough shooter from there, but he's never been a great three-point shooter. This is very much a guy who relies on his ability to create advantages for himself, lean into those advantages figuratively and literally, get to the free throw line, parade to the rim, draw the defense and kid like if he is no longer a threat and I know that's like I'm not going to go that far and say he's not going to be a threat this year, but if he's no longer the threat he once was inside the arc in a variety of ways whether that's finishing, drawing contact, whatever it is, like that is a big problem for him and the Nets. And it, it is at least a little concerning that we're talking about this from like an athleticism standpoint or like a burst standpoint for a guy that is on the other side of 30 that, as you mentioned, is someone that historically has played his way into shape, like isn't hasn't exactly been the picture of, you know, let's say LeBron-esque or even late career Chris Paul-esque on the vegan diet, you know, durability. So there are some concerns there. You know, I thought for the longest time, one of the coolest things in the NBA was the fact that, you know, like this guy in James Harden, you know, it was like an open secret that he had this kind of like party. And I don't mean irresponsible lifestyle, but just he had this kind of like very party, kind of aloof lifestyle, could show Well, if up. we're talking about just like the last 18 months, then yes, yeah, highly but, irresponsible lifestyle. What, yeah, well. Sure enough. Yeah, sure enough. But you know what I mean? Like even before that, like it, it was... It was funny and yeah, pretty cool to like think of this guy who, you know, didn't seem <laughs> to pay much mind to like maybe getting himself in peak physical shape, especially even as aesthetically, who had the type of lifestyle that resulted in his jersey literally hanging from the rafters in a strip club. And yet he could still go out there and give you 50 and 10, drop 40 on your head top whenever he wanted to and just drag his team to 50 plus wins every year and at least the second round of the playoffs. It was just like a cool star athlete persona. And maybe it's early to say this yet, but maybe this is the beginning of the chickens coming home to roost there because I would imagine, I'm no sports scientist, but I would imagine that the way you maybe take care of your body before you approach the other end of your 30s could impact the other end of your 30s. And I hope that's not it. I really do because I, I I love watching James Harden ball. But 
I would at least be concerned a little bit that this might be what it is. Yeah. I mean, I, I still feel like long-term the Nets are going to be fine. I think Harden will get better and they'll figure it out. I just, the, if you want to have fun with small samples, the Harden KD minutes so far have been like weirdly disastrous. They've actually been really good in the solo KD minutes and they've been pretty good in the solo Harden minutes. But with both of them out there together, they got a 94.7 offensive rating and they're getting outscored by 16.7 points per hundred. I expect that to change. Um, I expect their offense to be better. And, you know, on the plus side, like I mentioned, KD has been ridiculous. And Patty Mills has been, you know, every bit the perfect fit that I expected him to be. Like, I mean, obviously the shooting, he hit his first 10 threes, uh, but just like the speed and the off ball movement to me is such a nice wheel greaser for when their offense gets sticky, which like it does have a tendency to do. Like they, they have some guys Harden, Durant who, who tend to sort of dance with the ball. Sometimes there's a lot of ISO and I just like what Mills brings as a, as a mover. Um, as somebody who can sow chaos off the ball. I think it's just a really nice antidote to some of those iso ball tendencies, and it keeps that offense from getting stuck in mud. So I, th- I think big picture, they'll be fine. Um, but yeah, definitely the Harden stuff is a concern. And if it doesn't resolve itself, then this Nets team is going to have some issues because it's not like they can rely on their defense to win them games. But uh, yeah, what's what's your next observation? We got to talk Hornets, right? And and your boy Miles Bridges. Let's do it. I mean, he's been phenomenal. He <laughs> he looked. I mean, he's not going to be this all year, but the guy looked like a superstar through the first couple of games. The Hornets were one of the last remaining undefeated teams. They are now three and one after, uh, I believe, an overtime loss to the Celtics. I just love the way they're playing. I love the energy and the entertainment value quite frankly like they've been by far the most entertaining team in the league through one week and you know I, look I don't think they're going to the Eastern Conference Finals so I want to like choose my words carefully here but I do kind of get like last year's Hawks early season vibes from this team in that you know not even in like the style of play or again in the end result they're not going to make the East Finals but they do seem to be that kind of like early season team that you know, are overperforming in some ways. And I think a lot of people will write off because they'll be like, okay, well, this team's not that good. Miles Bridges isn't this good. LaMelo's great, but he's not going to be this good like and, and this dominant this early. And people will be like, use their preconceived um, expectations of this team to write off some of the stuff they're doing now. When it's like, if you really watch them, yeah, are they going to play at a 750 win pace? Obviously not, but there are a lot of things and reasons when you watch this team think, oh, they might have something here. And they have a good blend here that like they should actually be better than a lot of us thought they could be. And when I talk about last year's Hawks team, I just mean that kind of team doing some things early in the season that because it's unexpected, they're going to get written off. But there's actually some sustainability there. And I do think there are reasons to believe like the Hornets can hang around you know like last year they hung around the play-in race for a long time maybe maybe this is a team that can get in the mix for the playoffs proper you know like why not and uh yeah so i, I think that's been that's been a fun 
early season development because as I said, they've been the most entertaining team in the league. And if, you know, if the most entertaining team in the league with a lot of cool young talent ends up in the playoff race all season, that's not just good for Charlotte. That's good for the NBA. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely true that it's, <laughs> that, it, that is good for the NBA because they are a super fun team to watch and, and a franchise that hasn't had a ton of success, especially recently. Um, and it's been cool to see them kind of rise from the ashes and, you can kind of feel the excitement, you know, the buzz in the air at their home games. Like part of there's, the yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, you don't, I don't want, I don't want to draw too much attention to it, but it's, it, it's just clear that there's something really exciting happening there. And obviously it starts with Lamelo, who just like on an aesthetic level is I don't know if I've ever seen a guy with such a high dribble be able to control the ball as well as he does. And I just love, like, he has these great big loping strides. And when he, like, it's not like he has this lightning quick first step necessarily, but I just feel like because of his ball handling ability and because of those long strides, he's still able to just put guys on his hip in, like, a blink of an eye, you know? And, like, penetrate and obviously once he's in the middle of the floor his passing is so deadly but you know the biggest point of development for him seems to be his three-point shooting and specifically off the bounce to the point that I don't think going under screens against him is really a viable strategy anymore like he's had two games this year now where he's hit seven threes the first one was against Indiana and you know Indiana actually going under screens against him seemed like a positive development for them, but he made them pay for it by hitting seven threes. And then he hit seven again against the Celtics. And the volume to me is what's ridiculous. Like he took 14 threes in that game out of 19 total shots. Uh, and he also shot 0 for 5 from 2 in that game, which is maybe a tad concerning because he is still pretty choppy as a finisher around the basket. But I, for one, did not expect you know, force LaMelo to put it on the floor and drive inside the arc to be like the sensible defensive strategy against him uh, this season or ever. But, you know, that is maybe the case right now with the way that he's shooting the ball. Um, well, the thing with then, his shooting pre-NBA was that like, the, like the numbers weren't great, but it was also such a ridiculously small sample size that it was hard to figure out what the hell was real and what wasn't. Yeah, but it's like his mechanics are not conventional at all. Like, I don't know what his feet are doing on his jumper still. It's like a little, it's, it's definitely a strange jump They're form. They're just vibing. But, yeah. Um, but you know, him and Lonzo both like pretty unconventional shooters in terms of their mechanics, but in both cases, super effective. Uh, and you mentioned bridges. I mean, I've been high on miles bridges. You know, this, That's, I call him your like, guy. Even I am, astonished by what he's been doing. I have no idea where this off the dribble juice came from because even last year when he had what I would call like a mini breakout, a lot of it was him basically playing as a small ball big and finishing everything out of the pick and roll, um, you know, finishing hit aheads and transition. He was more or less still a dependent scorer and, and like almost exclusively a play finisher. Whereas now, one season later, he's like an initiator, a self-creator who can seemingly get himself to any spot on the floor 
beat guys off the bounce. He's got a spin move in his bag. Like obviously a lot of that is just like brute force, but he's also got a lot of wiggle to his game all of a sudden. And it's pretty cool to see that. Like he, I don't know if this is going to continue, but for now he's supplanted Gordon Hayward as like Charlotte's go-to wing scorer. Uh, and, and that's Hayward hasn't very... even been bad. No, Hayward's been fine, yeah. but Bridges has just been that good, and that's been really exciting to see. Um, I still think he has a long way to go on the defensive end, where the reality just like hasn't caught up to the physical tools or like what he ought to be in theory as a defender. Um, I think his off-ball stuff is improved, but on the ball, he just I don't know. He still makes a lot of mistakes, so. That's, I guess, where I'm still looking to see some growth from him. But the offensive growth has been really amazing. Um, And then a little bit lower down the pecking order, but still just something that I've really enjoyed is Ish Smith, just such a perfect fit with this team. Like the pace that they play at and his speed with the ball, like how quickly he gets up the floor, Um, even after makes, right? Like he just gets the ball into the front court so fast. And I think that's like a perfect fit with how the Hornets want to play. Like they, they want to play up tempo. They want to get into their stuff early. And they also need somebody I feel like who can actually really provide some rim pressure. Right. Cause like I said, LaMelo for all his skill is still not really doing that. Um, Bridges is obviously doing it a bit, but I think Ish Smith is actually providing some downhill pressure that they really need. So he's been a great fit. I've loved watching him with that team. He's like the ultimate NBA nomad. I think he's played on 13 teams now, almost half the league in probably like 13 teams, in like 13 seasons, something like that. He's just yeah, been all over the place. And uh, he kind of like, he's never been bad, you know, like there, there's no reason that he's become the like consummate journeyman, but uh, he can't seem to stick in a single place. Maybe Charlotte will be it. Got another observation. Um, yeah, I mean, look, the Bulls are 4-0. and some I too caveats. can look at the standings. Well, we can't, like, we got to say something about no. them. No, yeah, you're right. They're 4-0. So first, let's get the caveat out of the way. They have played the Cadeless Pistons twice. They played the, the Pelicans without Zion and the Raptors without Siakam. So not exactly a murderer's row. And specifically, a slew of very bad offensive te- offensive teams which might go a long way towards explaining why they're fourth in defense right now. But Lonzo has been amazing. You know, Caruso has been amazing. I think Levine has really been competing at the defensive end. Uh, Pat Williams has been solid. And most importantly, I think they just defended really well as a unit. Like the communication and rotations have been airtight. They're moving on a string. Everyone's where they're supposed to be. I think... Look, I I don't expect them to wind up a top 10 defense when all is said and done. But I still think the early signs have been encouraging enough that league average feels very attainable. Which, if or when, you know, their offense really clicks, which it hasn't so far, that should probably put them above the play and fray in the East. If, if they can get to league average defensively. And um, I just thought, look, that, that game against the Raptors the other night, and again, you know, caveat being the Raptors minus Siakam are probably one of the five worst half-court offenses in the league. 
But the Bulls collectively did a really good job of funneling their ball handlers toward the baseline. They were bringing help down to cut those ball handlers off. So instead of popping out the other side of the baseline or gnashing the pick and roll, they were basically just getting pinned under the basket right up against the baseline. And from there, the Bulls would have a weak side defender splitting the difference between two guys. But really, they were cheating towards the corner to take away the easy straight line kick out. And that was forcing the Raptors to make these long kick out passes, basically from under the basket to above the break. And those those passes were in the air long enough, either for the Bulls to like recover and reset the possession or to just like intercept the ball. And they're intercepting it at, at like the three point line with numbers and going the other way in transition. Like I, I thought, you know, despite how poor the Raptors are in the half court, like I, I just thought it was a really impressive team defensive performance from the Bulls. And as much as they've yet to be really tested, I, I just, I like what I've seen from them so far. And I do think you can still say that there are some encouraging signs in spite of like the, the watered down competition. And, you know, look, I like the fact that they've got multiple high-level shot creators between Levine, DeRozan, even Vooch, right? Like, you throw the ball down to Vooch in a pinch, you need him to create something for himself. The guy's more than capable of doing it. Um, So I like the fact they have multiple shot creators, and I like the fact that, look, they obviously didn't finish the game against Toronto great if you see the fact they almost ended up blowing that game and couldn't get the ball up to court. But I think that was more about the Raptors' length than it was the Bulls being incompetent but what i was going to say is despite almost blowing that game i think what's pretty evident early on at least is is not just the the shot creation but also like they've got closers you know like they've got guys who can put games away and is that sometimes more of an eyeball thing yeah but that is like a really important component of a basketball team of an nba team especially when you consider how log jammed that group of teams i think will be between like the bulls the Celtics, the Knicks, maybe the Raptors if they get Siakam back early enough, the Pacers maybe in that like six to 10 range. And, you know, if one of those teams is going to just get to the playoffs proper, the Bulls having a multiple guys that can just kind of close tight games or at least get their shot off. You know, you can argue with where the shot's coming from uh, in DeRozan's case, but if they can, if they can create a shot for themselves in those situations and, you know, make it often enough like that, that's an advantage in those kind of games. And so I really like what the Bulls have done this far. And, uh, you know, I I was talking about with the Hornets um, coming up and that being good for the NBA just because they're such an entertaining team. We've always been good about like balancing, I think, how we talk about teams and not giving extra credence to big markets. But we do know it's also, you know, not a bad thing for the NBA right now that like then Bulls and the Knicks are both off to good starts and both look like good team. And I think the the Bulls and Knicks play on Thursday night on TNT. Like that, that is a great early season game from like a general fan interest perspective. So uh, yeah, I think the Bulls start, look, are they as good as their record? Obviously not. They're not a perfect team. And as you mentioned, it hasn't been a murderer's row of opponents, but it's, they're a good team with some things to fear if you're opponents, especially in that kind of mid-tier of the East. Yeah, and I think a lot of people have pointed out that this next stretch for them is going to be really telling because yeah. after that very light opening slate, their next 13 games go Knicks, Jazz, Celtics, Sixers, Sixers, Nets. Mavs, Warriors, Clippers, Lakers, Blazers, Nuggets, Knicks. So 
I think we're about to learn a lot about this Bulls team, probably a lot more than we've learned through the first four games, but hard to quibble with a 4-0 start in which they're number four in the league in defense. So hats off to them for that. Um, what do you got next? All right, we're uh, we're going pretty long on time here, so I might get to some of these quickly here. I might, I, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to read a few out, and I want you to pick which one you think is the most interesting, and maybe we can go. Yeah, live. all right. So the first is uh, the Timberwolves' stunning defensive turnaround, currently number one in defensive rating a week into the season. I don't need to hear anything else. Yes, that's the right. one. Okay. And I do want to mention one other thing about the Timberwolves. So D'Angelo Russell's been pretty trash, but <laughs> the um, Carl Anthony Towns, Anthony Edwards duo is something I actually, for a guy that has almost never believed in anything the Timberwolves have done other than getting Jimmy Butler in like the last decade, I actually do have hopes for this duo and like, you know, if cat if stays long-term, like that is something that can go into it. We talked, I think on a previous episode about how I actually think Anthony Edwards does have some defensive upside in addition to his scoring ability. I did just want to read out this one kind of fun with small sample sizes stat. Cause I thought it was hilarious. So the wolves are off to this good start. So obviously a lot of the numbers are going to look inflated. And so even with D'Lo on the court, like the trio of towns, Edwards and Russell uh, in 50 some odd minutes together, has a net rating of plus six per 100 possessions. But if you take D'Lo out of it and you look at the minutes, uh, the 30-something minutes, the Wolves have played with Cat and Edwards on the court with no Russell, their net rating is plus 49 per 100 possessions. So I think that insanely inflated number is both a testament to how good the Cat-Edwards duo looks and how promising it looks, but also how much better it looks without D'Lo in the mix. Well, yeah, let's talk about the defense because you called it a stunning turnaround. Obviously, it's a four-game sample, so maybe it's too early to call it that, but I do think they're like we're going to look at their defensive rating at season's end, and it's going to be much better than it was last year or the last few years. I, I really do believe that. For now... What is maybe surprising to me is that they're third in the league in defense, despite being 30th in defensive rebound rate and 28th in opponent free throw rate. So they're getting stops. It's well, it's working in large part because they're number one in opponent turnover rate. And if that defensive profile sounds familiar to you, it might be because you watched a lot of Raptors basketball last season because those Raptors had those exact strengths and weaknesses. They could not rebound. They could not stop fouling people, but they turned opponents over like crazy. And obviously Chris Finch arrived mid season from the Raptors coaching staff last year. So maybe this isn't totally surprising, but those things do kind of go hand in hand, right? Because when you play this really aggressive ball pressuring scheme in the Wolves' case, they're bringing Towns up a lot higher in pick and roll. They're scrambling, you know, behind those traps. Like, it's intense ball pressure all the time. And that is going to lead to you putting other teams on the line. And that is going to lead to you scrambling to box guys out and often leaving the defensive glass unattended and giving up offensive rebounds. So it all does kind of go hand in hand. You would like to see maybe a bit healthier of balance there, but like, I think what jumps out to me is right now the Wolves are number one in steals and number one in blocks in the NBA. And obviously those defensive counting stats are limited descriptors when it comes to overall defensive quality. 
But I think what they obviously speak to is an incredibly high level of activity, which is a welcome change for this team because the Wolves have generally been pretty lifeless at that end of the floor. So even if it's not sustainable, I think it's a really good sign that that activity level has been there, you know, and look, I guess the big difference between them and last year's wraps is the Wolves are actually doing a pretty decent job of limiting threes, despite all the ball pressure they're applying. And that wasn't the case for the Raptors last year. Their opponents are also shooting 29% from deep. So that's bound to regress. And I think their defense as a whole is bound to regress, but I love seeing the activity level. I mentioned before the season, if they were going to be playing towns up at, you know, the level of the screen, it was going to be really incumbent on guys like McDaniels and Akoji to provide that second layer of resistance, like behind the ball screens. And so far, both of those guys have been incredible at that. Yeah. I just think it's, it's, it's been really fun to see and kind of like Charlotte. Like, I, I don't think that, I think the, the the Hornets are probably a better team than the Wolves on balance, but I, I see a similar scenario where this kind of long, moribund franchise just has something pretty exciting brewing, and it just has a chance to be this really galvanizing thing for a fan base that hasn't had anything to cheer about in a long time. Even that one Jimmy Butler season wasn't a particularly joyful season in Minnesota, yeah. you know? And I think this team just has this character about it that is that is super exciting and they're leveraging all their speed and athleticism, you know, at the defensive end of the floor, which is, you know, not something I necessarily would have expected. It's too bad. D'Angelo Russell is going to play himself out of any potential of being in a Ben Simmons trade, because if there ever was potential to begin with, because that Simmons Edwards towns fit. Oh baby. All right. Hit me with one. Uh, hit me with one more because we are running out of time here. Um, Just a general thing. Like, Offense is down across the league right now. Um, I think I, I was just going by the basketball reference stat because uh, it was easier to find. But right now, the average offensive rating is 107. And last year was 112.3. So, Dude, the Lakers' top-ranked defense last year allowed 106.8 points for 100 possessions. So you're saying the average NBA offense right now would have been like the an offense going against the number one D last year. The way that basketball reference calculates it is different. There's like a slightly different, I, yeah. I think it has to do with offensive rebounds and how those are counted as possessions. So if you're, if you're taking it from the NBA.com uh, metric, then I don't think it's going to quite line up, but yeah, basically per basketball reference, it's down five points per hundred from where it was at last year. And I think that's interesting. And I do think that probably the decline in free throw rate has something to do with that. Uh, I think I can't remember who it was who pointed this out, but the average number of free throw attempts per game is the lowest that it's been in NBA history so far. And it's not just the free throws themselves, right? It's like dissuading jump shooters from hunting those fouls. And even more than that, I think it's emboldening defenders to actually try and challenge jump shots and take away that space without worrying about picking up fouls because a jump shooter is going to leap into them, essentially. I do think that's having an effect. Um, and 
you know, I, I don't know. Is there anything else that you've seen that would that would speak to that decline apart from those rule changes? Because I no. I feel yeah. I would say in terms of measurables, no, it's got to be that. But I would say like if you want to look maybe even a little deeper, I do wonder how maybe Fuller Stadium like. Hmm. Like I, I feel like there is some sort of energy transfer. You know, I know we can't quantify it, but there's like there is some sort of energy transfer of it, it was something like defense, especially, which does not all of it, but some of it comes down to effort, you know, and having twenty thousand people not even just cheering you on, but just like transferring their energy and and firing you up a little bit to yeah, maybe get down in your stance a little more, dig in a little more, you know, fight for that one extra possession a little more as opposed to playing in front of empty gyms, half full gyms, quarter full gyms. Now, can I guarantee that's part of the reason? No, but I would say like if you're looking for multiple reasons in addition to the rule changes, which I think have had the biggest effect, I do think that just having more butts in the seat and just having more energy in buildings would probably lead to at least slightly better effort overall on the defensive end. Maybe even more pertinent than that, like the three-point shooting. Like, I think, and again, I don't know how scientific this is, but the empty gyms was cited a lot last season as a reason that three-point percentage was up across the league. Last year in the regular season, the league average three-point percentage was 36.7%. And so far this year, it's 34.7%. So... There's another thing that, you know, on its own could help explain a league-wide downturn in offensive efficiency. Like people just aren't shooting the ball quite as well. And quite possibly, you know, shooting the ball in raucous full stadiums is uh, feels like a little bit more of a pressure-packed situation than shooting in an empty gym. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Uh, I, I did lie. I do have one more just kind of interesting observation, and that is that the fact that through a week and a little bit of the season, 13th pick and 24-year-old rookie Chris Duarte from your Indiana – sorry, no longer your Indiana Pacers – looks like one of the – and he won't be by the time the season's over, but looks like one of the best like three rookies in the league through a week. Guys averaging uh, roughly 20 points, five rebounds, and three assists on 55% true shooting, which for a rookie is pretty efficient. Um, like that that's pretty stunning considering – I would, even our audience who, you know, for the most part are hoop heads, they're tuning into this podcast every week. I bet you if you would ask the average non-Pacers fan listening to our podcast who Chris Duarte is in reference to the NBA, they would have been like, I don't know, is he like a Timberwolves video scout or something? Like not many people would have guessed he was a lottery pick and an older rookie who would come into the NBA and average 20 a game on efficient shooting through his first week. So I just wanted to shout that out and him out. Yeah, he shot the ball so well. Um, there's another guy where, like, if you look at his two-point percentage, it's extremely underwhelming. I think it might be under 40%. Uh, so it's being buoyed right now by his three-point shooting, which that's... Look, it's been great so far, and I do think, like, he looks like a great shooter. He's got such a pure stroke. So I'm not saying it's going to fall apart, but if he's not shooting the ball as well as he is now, then things could start to look a lot different. But... That's a great development for the Pacers because I feel like they've just needed some help on the wing for a really long time. And having that help arrive in the form of, you know, a ready-made starting caliber rookie, I think that's pretty exciting for them. And it's not just 
stand still catch and shoot stuff either. Like he's actually creating his own shot a bit. He can do some stuff off the dribble. I really like what I've seen from him so far. Rookie class in general has been pretty exciting, even though Cade hasn't played yet. Like Evan Mobley is looking so, so good in Cleveland. Scotty Barnes, I feel like you could argue has been the best player on the Raptors so far this season. Uh, I think this is going to be a really fun rookie class, not just this season, but like well into the future. Um, It could be, I feel like this has a chance to be like one of those seminal rookie classes that we look back on and just marvel at years later. Uh, Okay, real quick, because you mentioned Mobley, that the Jared Allen Mobley front court is looking hilariously good right now. But I just wanted to shout out this one stat, and I don't know if everyone saw it. Uh, Stat Muse tweeted it on Monday night. So Jared Allen had 21 points, 16 and 16 rebounds on 10 of 11 shooting in the Cavs latest win. He's the first player with a 2015 game on 90% shooting plus since Jared Allen on February 24th, who was the first to do it since Jared Allen three days earlier. So the last three instances of that happening in the NBA, all Jared Allen, all this year, fantastic player. And the front court combo with him and Mobley, who knows what it looks like long-term, but looks pretty damn good right now. All right, now I'm really out of, uh, I'm not out of observations. I've got plenty more, but we're at an hour and a half almost. And we got a cabin somewhere. Yeah. I may have plenty more observations, but our audience does not have plenty more patience. So let's cap this mofo. Okay. One more for me, just because you mentioned the Cavs and 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 their win over Denver the other night. Yeah. Um, And, and because Jokic, I think banged knees in the game against Utah last night. Uh, I didn't watch that game, but he had 24 and six in the first half and then didn't play in the second half. And it was academic from, from that point on. Scored and or created via assist 37 points in 15 minutes. The guy is just ridiculous. He looks just as good, if not better than he did when he won MVP last season. Um, But the Nuggets as a whole, I don't know. Um, So yeah, let's do some fun with small sample sizes. The Nuggets are 40 points per 100 possessions better with Nikola Jokic on the floor than with him on the bench so far this season. So if he's got to miss any time, uh, yikes. Because yeah, MPJ... We talked about him being a swing player and how these swing players can swing their team's seasons in either direction. Kind of a troubling start for him. We have, we have not really seen any growth in his off-the-dribble game. And with more being asked of him now in that offensive role, his continued struggles defensively, uh, it just, not saying it's not going to change, but it's been a tough start for him. Yeah, Aaron Gordon has looked rough in, in with Jokic off the floor and with Murray injured. But the thing with Aaron Gordon is, like he had found his perfect role in Denver as like what, like a fourth offensive option, more of a connector on the offensive end who fills so many defensive needs for them. We know Aaron Gordon is overextended when he's asked to do too much offensively. Like I'm not hating on him for that. Michael Porter Jr. offensively is supposed to continue to take steps and like ascend, you know, up the offensive pecking order and just sign a max contract. Like they need more from this guy than under 40% from two, barely over 30% from three, and not at all impacting the game when Jokic and Murray are not on the court. Like, just flat out, they need more of them. All right, now I'm done. So hit us with a fan shout-out and let's get out of here. Fan shout-out this week is from Shane Craven in Victoria, British Columbia, who reached out a couple weeks ago via Instagram. Says he's a huge fan who's actually been listening since the first few episodes when there were three of us with Will Liu included. He said he listens to every episode and can't wait for them to come out. He even started listening to the Knuckleheads podcast 
Quentin Richardson and Darius Miles after we had them on our podcast. So basically, Shane is saying we are the influencers here, not Q Rich and Darius Miles. Also, Darius Miles involved in that uh, health-related scam. So maybe we don't want to call him a friend of the show anymore. I know we'll let the legal process play out there. Uh, he says his favorite episode has got to be after the Raptors won the championship, in which he claims he could tell we had been out celebrating having a good time before recording that episode in which i will neither comment here nor there about that and then just wanted to thank us for doing the pod tells us to keep doing what we're doing and uh, i say to shane the same thing i said everyone who thanks us for doing the pod and doing what we do no thank you for listening and supporting and allowing us to do what we do so thank you shane hope you enjoy this shout out thank you for your support usual call out if you're a fan of the show, if you're a listener, whether you're a one-time listener or a 202-time listener, hit us up on Twitter at Joey W on Twitter, but U is actually spelled, W is spelled out like the two words, uh, at Joseph Casharo on Twitter, at Joe underscore 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 cash on Instagram, Joe.Wolf on at the score.com via email, Joseph.Casharo at the score.com via email. Let us know how long you've been listening, where you're listening from, and what you think of the show. With that, Back to this week's host, Joe Wolfond. I got nothing more to say, so I'll just close it out here. Uh, we went long, but we had a lot to talk about, and we're obviously just super excited to have the NBA back and the regular season underway. So we will talk to you all next week with a fresh new batch of early season observations. But for now, we're signing off. For Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfond. Pound the Rock. <laughs>